Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Kia ora, I'm Claire Finlayson, Programme Director of the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. The 2019 festival recording that you're about to hear was brought to you with funding from the Dunedin UNESCO City of Literature and with the support of ORFM. This session, Akala, Natives, chaired by Paula Morris, was presented by the Otago Daily Times and in association with the Auckland Writers' Festival. Enjoy. Ena mana, ena reo, ena rangatirama, tena koutou, tena koutou, tena koutou katoa. Kia ora everyone, I'm Paula Morris and I'm delighted to be here in sunny Dunedin with Akala. Please welcome Akala. I should tell you, our our session today is presented by the Otago Daily Times, which I understand is the last independent newspaper left in New Zealand, someone told me. Is that true? (laughs) It's not true, but it sounds good. Um, And also with the Auckland Writers Festival, they're co-presenting this. So today we we started a little bit late, so hopefully we can run a little bit late. I'm not in a rush. I'm... I'm, uh where I live is 24 hours away, so it's fine. I'm not, in a ru- I'm not in a rush to go home. We've just given him very strong coffee. We have, yeah. Go so forward. he's good to go. I am. So we're going to talk for a while, and then we'll open up the floor to questions. Today we're going to talk about lots of things. I just want to briefly say about Akala. Artist, writer, intellectual, educator, entrepreneur. He's been called a Renaissance man and an essential voice in Britain's debate on race, class, and identity. And this book is its personal history, it's a historical essay, it's a political treatise, it's a call to action, or at least information and education. And it really reflects, I think, his very wide-roaming intellectual curiosity and engagement with the world and its connections. So I wondered if we could begin today, Akala, by talking a little bit about the genesis of the book. You and I were talking backstage and you Mm. thought I was drawing too straight a line, but would you talk about some of the seeds of this book with us? No, no, I wouldn't say this. I thought you were drawing too straight a line. I think think you were drawing a line that I hadn't even been conscious of myself, but but now makes sense when you say it. Um, So I did actually a um, a graphic novel in 2008. I read a book by a French scholar called Count Constantine de Volney, um, which was, he was part of the Napoleonic expedition to ancient Egypt. And for those who don't know, the the pyramids and the Sphinx and all that was actually buried under sand. So he saw that all get excavated. And he wrote an amazing book, which I recommend everybody read, incredibly poetic book uh, called The Ruins of Empires. And one of the interesting things he talks about at that point is, is the theory of race. Because to him, he looks at the Sphinx. The Sphinx has, I mean, it hasn't got a nose anymore. People debate where that nose went. Um, but many of the statues he looked at in ancient Egypt, it was obvious to him immediately, as it was to many other French Egyptologists at the time, that the, the features, as he put it, of the, as, of the Sphinx were stereotypically Negro. And remember, he was living at a time where race science, where the idea of race was considered scientific. And, and one of the arguments of that uh, was, you know, people with what they call subnasal prognathis, where they, they have averted lips and have uh, a wide nasal aperture to breathe in tropical air, um, <laughs> was considered a mark of inferiority. So obviously he's looking at the face of the Sphinx and he's like, well, all this race stuff, that was one of the things that immediately occurred to him, um, was basically 
basically nonsense. And I thought that was really interesting because Egyptology has worked very, very hard over the, over, the ne- over the next two centuries since then to sort of whiteify the image of ancient Egypt. But to the original French visitors in ancient Egypt, that wasn't what, what occurred to them. But anyway, the book is generally brilliant. From that book, I wrote a graphic novel. Well, actually, originally it was a rap. So I was on, uh, in a hut in Brazil in 2008, and I wrote a long-form poem inspired by Volney's book. So it was my version of that book. Uh, I recorded it over music. didn't work. Uh, I tried again something else. didn't work. Then I met an artist from Japan um, called Tokyo Oyama, and we did a graphic novel version of it together, and I was like, aha, that kind of makes sense. And actually, since then, we've turned it into a short film for BBC Two. Um, so maybe, I'm not, I'm not encouraging you to do this, but you know, if you scour the internet, you might be able to find a version that you can steal. Um, but anyway, so I'd always been engaging with this idea of sort of empire and ruins of empire and, and, and lost civilizations or crumbling civilizations or kind of changing currents in the world. And obviously, living in Britain, a country that was at one point in human history the most successful Uh, empire in the world we have a lot of grappling with empire to do and so I think that background that theatrical artistic uh, poetic background may have fed somewhere into this and and, and so what I tried to do here and it felt like the right age you know I'm 35 now I was 33 when I began the book it felt a good time to reflect on the personal and the political because when you come from kind of background that I come from in the UK this age is a good age to see how everything panned out almost. You know, in, in, in my neighborhood, my family is the poor family that made it. Yeah? But when I look around, and this includes the poor white kids that I grew up with, virtually everyone is pretty much where they started. It, no matter how hard they worked. You know, I grew up with plenty of middle class kids that weren't that clever, weren't that bright, didn't work that hard in school, brought lots of cocaine into school, brought lots of ketamine into school, magically didn't get searched by the police. And now have very good jobs as lawyers and and some of them have become very right-wing and complain about drug dealers stabbing each other. And I'm like, well, I remember you in school, fam. Um, But whatever. Um, Whereas the Irish kids from the council estate near where I grew up with, the, the, the Caribbean kids, the Cypriot kids, generally British society, even though my neighborhood is sort of a poster child for... London's liberal success. We have some of the richest kids and some of the poorest kids in the same neighbourhood. We've got 130 languages. In many ways, it's, um, it's a utopia. But it isn't. And, and so this felt a good time to reflect on that personal um, curve and try and put that in the context of the British Empire. Because when I was at school, no one ever explained to anyone in my class how there were kids from Sudan, Nigeria, Ghana, Bangladesh... India, very, predict- very particular set of countries, and why there weren't kids from Cameroon, why there weren't kids from the Ivory Coast, why there weren't children from Algeria, why were there children only from countries that suddenly speak English today, and how did they come to speak English? How did all these brown people arrive in England, magically speaking English? Nobody ever explained that when I was in school. And, um, and so this book is an attempt to try and do that, but make it relatable through my own personal experiences. And just to say, oh, I'm shouting... My grandparents had a map of the world coffee table where the empire was in pink. Do you remember those days? Mm-hmm. So you could easily... I thought, why are all these countries in pink? And it was because it was, we were part of that family. Yeah. We were talking... We are younger siblings in that family, are we not? Family. Um, you, talk about, <laughs> you talk about growing up in the 80s. Yeah. And, well, being born in the 80s um, and into a time in British history that was really turbulent. 
And it was only when I read your book that I realised I arrived uh, in England in 1985. Poor you. September 1985. The day I arrived, Handsworth riots. By the end of the month, Brixton riots. The next month, Broadwater farm riots. Mm -hmm. It was a time of enormous political turbulence. Now, that helped form how you saw where you lived and who you were? Yeah, I mean, it... So when I talk, I do lots of work in schools. You know, I go to countless amount of schools um, in the UK. And what, what's been really strange to me is kids growing up, particularly in London, Manchester, Birmingham, Bristol, just take it for granted that they have friends from different ethnicities, that they all kind of get along, that no one beats up the Indian kids anymore, like, because the Indian kids fight back, partly. That was a big part of it. Um, but they don't even know... The kids growing up now, a lot of their parents haven't taught them that history. So as recently as 1984, a quarter of all of the South Asian families in Tower Hamlets had been physically attacked, like in an overtly racially motivated attack. That's how recent um, we're talking. And so I started to look around. I was like, London has become multicultural. The culture of London, like you pick up the phone to a teenager in London t today and you don't know whether it's a black kid, white kid, South Asian, Turkish. They, they have what scholars call multi-ethnic London English listen to the same music, they wear the same clothes, and I'm talking almost exclusively actually about working class kids. So London has been quite, in many ways, one of, if not the most successful multi-ethnic cities in, in the world. You never know that if you watch the press in England. Um, but lots of people have forgotten how we got there. And this, that chapter on the 80s is sort of a reminder of how tough things actually were. The Broadwater Farm and the Brixton riots, again, for those who don't know, the police in one case raided... A young brother I know, they raided his, his uncle's house and his grandmother wound up dead. A week later, they shot and paralyzed an elderly black woman called Sherry Gross. Um, people rioted. Everyone can say in hind everyone said at the time, unruly, crazy black people. But if there's anyone worth burning half the city down for, surely it's granny. Do you know what I mean? Like When you really think about it, if there's anyone worth defending in the whole world, it's your grandmother. And in hindsight, everyone can see that. At the time, it was just like, what's wrong with these crazy black people? Um, and so people, forget, now if that happened in Britain, you know, if the police shot someone's grandmother, even most fairly bigoted people would be like, that, that's absolutely outrageous. At the time, at the beginning of, that, uh, beginning of that decade, 13 black children burned to death in a suspected racist arson attack in a place called New Cross in South London. And the prime minister of the time didn't even say sorry, didn't come to visit, didn't even acknowledge it as if it didn't occur. These were British citizens. The police bungled the investigation. They treated the victims as if they were suspects, accused them of setting fire to their own home, all this kind of stuff. Um, so I'm also saying, actually, British society has got a lot better. Even though I'm very critical of it still, it would be very disrespectful to my dad, who has scars all over his body from fighting the National Front and the Teddy Boys and the police and my stepdad and everyone else to deny that in many ways British society has improved. I've never been beaten up by the police. That might not sound like much of an achievement, particularly for white people, you know, but in the context of Britain, that's quite an achievement. I've been searched, I've been handcuffed, I've been thrown in the back of a van, I've been told I look like the person who just robbed someone. I've been searched illegally underage 50 times maybe, but I've never been beaten up. And that might not seem that much, but it's a massive step forward from where my dad and my stepdad and my uncle, all of whom got beat, beaten up by the police several times. And what's interesting is at the time... When they tried to tell British society this was happening, it, don't be so ridiculous, the police don't do that, blah, blah, blah. Now everybody admits that's what was going on in the 80s. But guess what? When young black kids today say, yo, when the cameras ain't on, the police treat us differently to everybody else. What do you think 
most people in British society say. Oh, no, don't be so ridiculous. It's all fair. You're just complaining about nothing. So it's really interesting, this pattern of people not being able to see things at the time they're occurring. And so one of the reasons I tried to go so in-depth about the 80s is to, again, is to one, remind people, and also remind people where we don't want to go back to. Because this idea, one of the problems with the Industrial Revolution or its legacies is that people confuse technological progress with civilizational progress. There is no guarantee whatsoever that being more technologically proficient will make us more moral. In fact, we saw in Germany, the technological proficiency can give much greater tools to savagery. Um, And so we should not take for granted that things are going to get better just because we can build taller skyscrapers and faster trains. And so I think reminding people about what the 80s was like is also about saying, yo, if we're not careful, if we allow bigotry to go unchecked, if we allow the Daily Mail and the state to keep talking rubbish, this is what we've got to look forward to. Only this time, the marginalized groups are much, much better equipped to fight back than they were in the 80s. And I mean, who would want to go to Peckham and fight with young black boys today? I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it if I were you. Even if you're the police, it's not, really some, it's not smoke you really want in a country where guns are illegal. Um, and so, yeah, that's what that was about. And I want to go to, to talk about youth violence and issues yeah. around that soon. But just briefly, can we just talk about um, the treatment you had at school? Because one of the shocking things about the book is that you were clearly a bright kid's Really voracious, keen, talkative, unbelievable now, but he was talkative as a child. Indeed, yeah, I was, yeah. <laughs> you went to a, a special Pan-African school on a Saturday for extra lessons. You were deeply interested in things, but you were often treated very badly by teachers and at one point put into a special needs class. It was precisely because I was too bright for my own good was why I was put in that group. So what's interesting, as I was saying to you when we were talking backstage, for British Caribbeans, the stereotype of Caribbean people in Britain is the exact opposite to the stereotype of Caribbean people in the United States, even though they are literally our cousins. So every British Jamaican, like me, has cousins in New York and cousins in Miami. In America, magically, we are, the, we are, we are stereotyped more like how Indians are stereotyped in England. You know, in America, we are the good black people, the black immigrants who came to America and made it, did well at school, went to Harvard. Colin Powell's Jamaican, by the way. Kamala Harris is Jamaican. The Woman in Scandal's Jamaican. Like, if you actually look at a list of Jamaican-Americans, you'll be like, all of them people, um, the founder of hip-hop, etc. right? So Jamaican-Americans have massively overachieved. And I don't mean just in obvious things like music. They earn more than the average American, not just the average black American. They are more qualified than the average American, not just the average black American, but the average American, full stop. In Britain, British Jamaicans are pretty much at the bottom of British society. And the way British society has explained that is apparently via Jamaican culture. What they haven't been able to explain is why this version of Jamaican culture, academic underachievement in particular, only exists in Britain. As I was saying to you before, Jamaican kids in Jamaica actually do much, much better in school, not just than British Jamaican kids, but even than poor white kids in England. And Jamaicans in the States overachieve the University of the West Indies is in the top 5% of universities in the world. I say that as a preamble to this. So Caribbeans come to the UK with the determination that their children will become doctors, lawyers, architects, scientists, things they could never have been in the Caribbean because in 300 years in the Caribbean of England governing the Caribbean, they didn't build any bloody schools. They only, in fact, they only built schools for their mixed-race offspring. So if you were like me and you were mixed, in the context of the Caribbean, you could go to school, you could get a good job. But if you were fully black, forget it. Um, so, you know, when England leaves Jamaica in 1962, literacy is still below 20%. So lots of people migrate to the UK thinking they're going to get better educational opportunities. When British society doesn't provide them with that, 
they set up special schools on a Saturday, right, to, to support their children. There were 150 of these at the peak of the movement in the 80s. I went to one of those schools. And actually, if you talk to most British Caribbeans of my age who've been academically successful, you'd be shocked how many of them come from this Saturday school movement. So I go into normal school a couple years ahead because I've had this extra support, because I've had parents who are just on me, you've got to read, you've got to read, you've got to read. And my teachers, who you'd think would want to support me, who'd embrace that, who'd, who'd encourage it, did the exact opposite. So I had this one particular teacher who took me out of mainstream schooling and put me in a special needs group for kids who don't speak English. She didn't tell my... Exactly. I was reading Lord of the Rings at home, by the way, uh, at this point. She didn't tell my parents. So as you know, she knew I didn't have special needs. She's just taken me out. I've been in the group maybe a month or two now. And my Saturday school, my black Saturday school, has started to notice my behavior slipping. I'm not doing as well. They say to my mom, yo, is everything all right at home? You know, like... And it, I think about this sometimes now. I'm an adult. It must have been so strange for my white mother to be in a situation where she basically had to lean on the black community to raise her half-black children. I mean, my mum was literally on Camden Black Parents and Teachers Association, my white mother. Um, but anyway, right? So my Saturday school come to my normal school. I think they were looking at one of the other children. I don't know what was going on. They noticed I'd been put in this special needs group. And they used to give us hot chocolate and biscuits at special needs. So I didn't want to leave. Um, you know? <laughs> But my mum basically comes up to school and she swears and shouts a little bit and I'm taken out of the group. And, and I realise now, obviously, I realised sort of at the time, but I realise now in hindsight, and, and, and what I do in this book is I situate that experience in the data. I don't just say, oh, this happened to me, so therefore I show that actually systemically young black boys that are too clever for their own good, this is a very common experience in Britain. Then what would have happened is, if I'd have stayed in that group for a year, or if I didn't have Black Saturday school, or if I didn't have a mum who could... Imagine my mum was a dark-skinned black Jamaican woman and therefore maybe was nervous about coming up to school and shouting because she didn't want to be perceived as the angry black woman. Right? There's no such thing as the angry white woman. So my mum didn't have that fear. She could come up to school and go crazy. Now, had that ruined my education, they'd just say, oh, well, look, the black boys are failing in school. Luckily for me, I had that extra sort of um, support. But there were many other hurdles along the way precisely because, remember, British was already a hierarchical class society before black and brown people arrived. There are plenty of poor white kids who've been told that's no job for the son of a bricklayer. What do you mean you want to be an architect? This is why when British people get in denial about this, I'm like, don't be so ridiculous. If you didn't even want these jobs for poor white kids, you're telling me you mean to offer them to the children from your former colonies. I'm like, stupid. Do you know what I mean? So in, the, in, in, in a hierarchical, Etonian-governed, class-based society... It's, no, it's not strange at all that the children of black immigrants from Britain's largest former slave colony were not actively encouraged to become architects and doctors and lawyers. And so what I met with was that resistance actually to my academic ability. Had I been average or below average, I would have perhaps not had any of these problems. Go and do some sport, go and run around the track, Kingsley. That, that would be fine. And so I go through and show that a lot of my experiences that carried through school are actually systemic rather than just the result of a few bad apples, you know, being bigots. That said, I also point out I had some very good teachers and they weren't only the black teachers. There were lots. Black teachers in particular took a really active role in supporting me. There was a teacher from Poland who I had the following year after that woman who, he was my guy. To this day, I proper, like, I, I see him as someone who helped turn my life around. We had a radical sociology teacher at our secondary school who, a middle-aged white guy, and he was very much like, yeah, there are people who want you to fail because you're a working class black boy. What are you going to do about it? You're going to be a stereotype and drop out of school and do what all the racist people want you to do or are you going to succeed? Do you know what I mean? So he didn't give us an excuse to fail, but he didn't deny the truth. Do you know what I mean? So, and in a way, all the men, and we respected him. We was like, 
he's telling the truth, but he still expects something from us as black boys. He's not going to do the sort of, oh, I'll take it easy on you. You know, you are black after all, so you shouldn't have to really work hard in school kind of thing. So I had some good teachers too. Now, race and class are in the title of your book. And it's interesting, it's not just about race because you make the, a very compelling argument that it's a massive class issue in, in Britain when we talk about violence, spate of violence, knife crime, young people. You say now it's being portrayed as black-on-black violence. It's black boys. But in fact, it's that Britain has a long history of disaffected working-class youth gangs. Uh, of, co- of course. I mean, and this, the scholarship on this is very clear. But the right-wing press, they don't care about scholarship. Um, so there's lots of good books. If you look at Andrew Davies, he's one of the leading uh, historians of gangs in Britain. He wrote a brilliant book called uh, City of Gangs about Glasgow. He wrote another book called Gangs of Manchester. Robert McKilvey's written lots of stuff about the history of gang crime in Liverpool. The patterns are almost identical. I mean, the, young, the gangs in Manchester and Liverpool, 100 years ago, used to name themselves after American films. Do you know what I mean? You look at that now, and then you look at, you know, black gangs, black gangs among young boys in London imitating American gangs or imitating American uh, bandanas and things like that, and you think, oh, but that was already being done 100 years ago. What's really interesting is the press's reaction 100 years ago was identical. So back then, the gangs were overwhelmingly Irish or, interestingly, which might surprise most people, Jewish. So in, in London in particular, there was a big Jewish community in what is now the East End. They used to call it Jewtown, and they didn't mean it as a compliment. Um, and the explanation was this is just their culture. So there, was, there would be incidents where people had been stabbed. And if it was an Englishman, the press would say, oh, this is a very un-English thing to do. Because, I mean, obviously, the English have never been violent to anybody. Um, <laughs> And so it was blamed often on Irish culture. And actually, when you look at Glasgow, which has been historically and even now um, the most violent city in not just Britain, but Western Europe up until very recently, that is overwhelmingly the descendants of Irish Catholic migrants that live in in the hood in the east end of Glasgow. And their experiences in many ways, being excluded from the jobs market, being stereotyped in school, all that stuff, mirror what's happened to black children in London. What's interesting is even when I talk to black people about this, because if you live in Peckham on a council estate and everybody's black, people think they've you know, discovered something revelatory when they say that everyone that's been killed is also black. I'm like, but, but everyone who lives here is black. So that's hardly a surprise. The question is, in, similar, in demographically similar environments where there are no black people at all, do similar things occur? And of course they do in Naples, in, the, in southern Italy in general. You know, we don't call it olive-on-olive olive crime and suggest that the whole olive world, you know, should be over-policed because of what, you know, the history of the Italian mafia. Um, and obviously the problems with Irish Catholics are, of course, not called, or the descendants of Irish Catholics are not called white-on-white crime. There is, as I've said repeatedly, I think one sense in which black-on-black violence has credibility, but this is not the way in which the British press use it. It is the sense that at a certain stage in young black men's lives in the West... And again, this is only young black men who have very specific socioeconomic indicators. Poverty, often domestic abuse, expulsion from school, etc. There is a psychological self-hatred. You get to an age, and I went through this myself, you get to an age and you realise what it means to be black in this society. You've been searched by the police for, you know, the 50th time. Uh, you've been stereotyped in school for maybe the 20th time. And you realise, oh, okay, this black in this society means being lower class in most people's minds. And it means not having power. It means the laws of the state do not apply to your body. 
And as a consequence of this, this is not an excuse, but this is a consequence, you become resentful to the people who most remind you of yourself. And I know this. When I was a teenager, me and my friends would be walking down the street. We'd see a group of white boys on the other side of the road. They wouldn't even register. We'd see a group of Indian lads on the other side of the road. They wouldn't even register. And I know I've been in problems with Bengali boys from Tower Hamlets. They're just as capable of being violent as black boys. I can promise you that. Um, But I still wouldn't register them as a threat. You see another group of young black boys you don't know in this kind of... What are they on? Is it going to pop off? So there is a psychological self-hatred element. What British society doesn't ask is how come that occurs in Britain and say not Ghana. The murder rate in Ghana is lower than the murder rate in Belgium and Ghana is one of the poorest and blackest countries in the world. How come teenage boys in Ghana, despite the amount of excessive melanin they have in their body, do not go to school, you know, and feel that same hostility towards blackness? Um, Even in Jamaica, where my family come from, which is one of the most violent countries in the world, the violence in Jamaica is almost exclusively concentrated in the ghetto. Outside, to the extent that my middle-class Jamaican friends will regularly say to me, oh, it's not that violent in Jamaica, it's just the press exaggerating. I'm like, no, no, a thousand people have been killed this year. It is that violent. What you mean is, it doesn't affect you. It doesn't affect middle-class Jamaicans, even middle-class black Jamaicans. Um, And so it is revealing that the state individualizes the crimes of some and the right-wing press and generalizes the crimes of others. And so what my argument is, is that young black boys and anyone else who gives a shit, but young black boys in London in particular need to understand the game that's being played and understand that what is essentially the black underclass, children who've grown up in care. So half of our prison population are children who've grown up in care, uh, children who've experienced severe domestic abuse, are being used as a literal and ideological weapon against all of the other black kids who the police themselves know full damn well do not fit this demography. It's generally not the children of architects and school teachers. And there is actually a growing black middle class in London, which is what is making this even more stupid. You know, I've got lots of very successful, very wealthy black friends who used to think I was too radical. And now they've got teenage black sons, even mixed race sons, and their teenage sons, despite going to private school, despite doing everything right, despite not being in trouble with the law, despite doing well at school, still have to deal with the police. And their white friends who are bringing drugs into school do not. They realize, oh, he had a point all along. Um, and so I think the racialization of violent crime tells us something very sad in a way about British society. That ultimately, even people who've been in Britain four and five generations are still defined by blood quantum, by, by their ethnicity, not by their passport. And so there's this sense that these crimes are other. They come from somewhere else. These are not really British children. Last point I'll make on it, to contrast, when Jamie Bolger was killed, was that big news out here? Does anyone remember mm-hmm. the killing I'm talking about? Tony Blair, not that I'm into quoting Tony Blair, but Tony Blair's response to that killing was that we as a society need to look in the mirror about what this says about British society and we need to think. You know, these young, poor white lads from a really tough part of Liverpool have tortured a child and the Prime Minister's response is we need to look in the mirror as a society. That same Prime Minister, when asked about gang crime among poor black boys in London, said the black community needs to look in the mirror. And it's not the black community, it's the black underclass. If he'd have even said that, I would have said he's got a point. But the idea that, you know, Nigerian doctors need to have a long, hard look in the mirror because, you know, teenage boys who happen to vaguely look like them have killed someone is, of course, ridiculous. But when it comes to, to, to tail end your point about class... The reason why there's no class analysis for black people is because blackness has always been a class indicator within British society and within Western society in more general. So the blackness is sufficient to explain it. We don't need any class analysis. So it's assumed that all black people are an underclass. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when I get, even now, you know, I'll get on 
get booked for an engagement. I'll get on first class on the train, you know. And it's, I've, I've, I used to find this stuff offensive. Now I find it genuinely hilarious, right? A random passenger on the train will feel the need to say to me, this is, you know, this is first class, you know. And, and then what's, what's really funny is when they say that and then they recognize me, like a second later and they just feel so stupid. Um, well, because they saw you on Newsnight or something. There you something. go. Yeah. Or Newsnight or Question Time or something, right? But then I'll say, well, yeah, I, c- I can read English. Thank you. But, but, <laughs> but thanks for your input, right? Um, but it's because in their mind, and, and I, I genuinely, like I said, I used to get offended. And now I'm like, I feel really sorry for you. You are not equipped for the 21st century. If a young black man, not even young, I'm 35 now, being able to afford to sit in first class on the train is something that rocks your worldview to the extent that you, as someone who does not work for Virgin Trains, <laughs> feels the need to tell me I'm in the wrong place. Um, what are you going to do when China and India are the richest countries in the world? What are you going to do if Nigeria gets its shit together and actually becomes a wealthy country? You're not equipped for the future. So I actually find this stuff hilarious now, where I used to, when I was younger, I would have got angry about it. Um, but in their mind, blackness is a class indicator. Therefore, you know, if you're black and you've got money, you must be a drug dealer or you're just not supposed to have money or you're a football player. Um, so like when I fly business, which I do occasionally, you know, it's really interesting when a random passenger feels they need to say, so, so what do you do for a living? You know, they, sort of, they need to be reassured that there's a reason why I'm here. Do you tell them you're a drug dealer? Um, you know, I should, right? I, I, I'll tell you one, one time. I actually tell them I, I'm a historian and they look at... It's interesting when people look at you and, and go, they want to say, no, but really, what do you do? You know, but, but it's the truth. One, one time I was in Thailand on holiday, right? And um, because these stereotypes travel, they're international. I was in the, you know, going to a really nice hotel, um, and there was an old Italian couple who could afford to stay at the, ho- uh, the same hotel. So me and, me and my missus were in the back of the truck, and we started talking. And I'd actually just come from Australia, so my routine used to be I, I come to Australia and New Zealand. Actually, this year I didn't. That year I didn't go to New Zealand. I only went to Australia, and then I go to Thailand to chill out for, for January. Um, and we go to this hotel and I talk about how I've been on, in Australia on business and all this sort of stuff. And they've been talking about where they've been traveling. And, and then the, you know, the old Italian woman turns around and says to me, oh, so what are you, a DJ? <laughs> and a split second too late, I thought I should have turned around and said, oh, are you in the mafia? <laughs> right? But it came to me just that split second too late. And I was like, ah, oh, man, I wish it came to me a little bit earlier. Um, a lot of what you're saying is, I'm afraid, quite resonant with us in New Zealand, is it not? There are things that Carla talks about, and they're very uncomfortable resonances here. Yeah. I mean, you have a section quite early on in the book called Interlude, A Guide to Denial, where you list a lot of questions you're asked and what you say to refute them, and a lot of them about saying, why are you so obsessed with the past, which is mm. something that comes up here as well. That's past and gone. Mm. You have a book with uh, Nelson's column on it, and you make the point that mm-hmm. the British are quite happy to celebrate the past when it's, you know... Trafalgar, but not when it's the darknesses of, of society. And we have that issue here as well. What, what is being said is my ancestors are worth remembering, yours are not. Don't take it as anything else. They're never... If you don't wear the poppy in English society... I didn't fight in World War I or two. Why should I wear a poppy? For example, if you took that position, right? Why should I remember World War I or two? I didn't fight in them. This is what they say. You were never a slave, so you know, why do we have to talk about that period of history? And in fact, we abolished slavery first. So on the one hand, Britain wants to be remembered... So the positive part, we abolished slavery first, which isn't true, by the way. I've got a whole chapter refuting that <laughs> utter nonsense that people in England tell themselves. Um, but on the one hand, the positive side should be remembered. No one's ever told me to get over Shakespeare. I've been teaching Shakespeare virtually my whole adult life. 
And Shakespeare died 400 years ago. Yet parts of history that are more recent, we should apparently forget. And what they're really saying is, this makes me uncomfortable. I don't really want to hear about it. Your ancestors are not worth remembering. Or even very recent events are not worth remembering. But you shouldn't take it as any sort of real intellectual argument and try and meet it as that, because it isn't that. It's just people trying to offshore their own discomfort. But a lot of these um, comebacks, particularly to discussions of race, are perfectly rational. And that's what lots of people forget. You know, If your identity has protected you and maybe even helped keep your children safe, it's perfectly natural that you wouldn't want that to come under scrutiny. And this is the thing, because I am half white, I understand a lot of this stuff instinctively in a way that people can't fool me. You know, my mum goes to certain spaces and people who don't know she has brown children and there ain't any brown people around talk about race just as much as we do. Just don't do so publicly. You know, my mum, even when we go to Jamaica, there's places in Jamaica my mum will go that I won't go without calling a cousin and saying, yo fam, is it safe? Should I go down there? Because my mum doesn't realise it and even mean to do it. But being a white woman in Jamaica, woo, there's like 74 layers of protection. It's not that nothing can happen to you. It's just that Jamaicans understand very well, if something happens to a white woman in Jamaica, there's going to be consequences. The army might come in and kill a few people. You know, shit could go down because there's importance attached to that, to that body. Um, and so in a way, the protection of unearned privilege is, is entirely understandable and, and rational in a way. Recently, Jon Snow was on the news. I don't know if anyone saw this, right? Jon Snow Channel 4. Yeah, Jon Snow Channel 4. Big old Mr. Channel 4, right? And, He's quite uh, old now, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. And I like John, by the way. So this is not personal to John. He was presenting something about the Brexit march. And he said, oh, I've never seen so many white people in one place. <laughs> Which was a really odd thing to say, because you know, you're a white Englishman. Clearly, you have seen this many white people before. You've been to Hay Literature Festival. Um, <laughs> but it was a throwaway comment. He didn't say, I've never seen so many evil crackers in one place, right? Now, if he did, the 9,000 complaints would have been understandable. But just him saying, I've never seen so many white people in one place. 9,000 complaints or whatever it was Ofcom got. Now, these are the same channels that say black on black violence, black on black violence, black on black violence, black on black violence, day in, day out. Yet him just saying, white people received 9,000 complaints. And that is because, of course, persons racialized as white, as I prefer to call it, have been taught that they don't have a racialized identity. That they are, in fact, the default human being. Do you see what I mean? And, and therefore... To be told, oh, no, no, you have a racial identity just like everyone else. This whiteness, how do you think Celtic, Norman, Corsican, Polish, Slavs, all these people who historically were drastically different ethnic groups who often fought one another, weren't always the best of friends. My white ancestors are Highland Gaelic Celts. They don't bloody like the English. They hate the English. In fact, my, so my mum's half Scottish and half English. The English side of the family disowned her for basically getting with a black dude. The Scottish family, I think, were a little bit like, well, at least he's not bloody English. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So it's like, even now, you go to Northern Ireland and, and you look at the symbols used between Catholic and Protestant, the Catholics have a Palestinian flag and the Protestants have an Israeli flag. If you drive around Belfast, you'll see this very, very commonly. So there are big ethnic tensions within Europe. Whiteness out in the colonies, and class tensions, out in the colonies, whiteness overrode this. So in the case of the Caribbean... What you were insured as a poor white in the Caribbean was not that you would be rich, but you were insured you'd never end up a slave like the blacks or the Indians. And that's what white identity meant. Literally, what it was enshrined into law. We can't guarantee you're going to be rich. We can't guarantee your life's going to be good, but we can guarantee you won't end up like them. And of course, in a context where being white is the difference between being human and being a piece of merchandise, of course you'd want to protect that identity. And obviously, it's not that extreme today. 
But there is a sense in which there are layers of protection. No matter how many middle-aged white men become paedophiles, the British press will never, ever, ever be writing articles saying middle-aged white paedophilia, white on white paedophilia, white on white rape, white on white rape, white on white... Those articles are never going to come. Yeah, and there are 600,000 sexual assaults in Britain every year. I couldn't believe it when I read the data. Yeah? And so it's, there are layers of protection that is understandable in a way that people want to hold on to. But I don't think anyone who's serious about these discussions should genuinely pretend people don't understand what's going on. The sensitivity itself tells you they understand what's going on. Because if, if, why would you be sensitive to, it, sensitive to it if you don't understand what's going on? Why would you be sensitive to issues in history where Britain hasn't been the good guy if you're not trying to protect something about British identity, uh, more, more broadly speaking, too? Could we talk briefly about a big story that broke last year? Um, I'm sure that, that we heard about it here as well. The Windrush generation, where mm-hmm. the Home Secretary ended up uh, resigning Amber Rudd because basically information bubbled up that people were being wrongfully deported. Now, not everybody knows what the Windrush generation means. Would you just talk about that briefly? Yeah, so in 1948, uh, the British government made the entire British Commonwealth citizens of Britain, all 650 million people. Something they've bitterly regretted subsequently. Very bitterly regretted. It wasn't done because they genuinely wanted us all to be citizens. It was done because in the context of the post-war period, America and Russia emerge as the global superpowers. And little old Britain, who was the global superpower before the war, wanted to stay a global superpower. And having 20 or 30 or 40 million people, whatever Britain had at the time, was not the same as saying we have 650 million people. So they make the entire Commonwealth British citizens not anticipating that that meant the darkies would start coming to England. (laughs) And so a boat full of Caribbeans, 492 Caribbeans, upwardly mobile Caribbeans actually, because who else could bloody well afford to get on the boat at the time, Turn off in Tilbury in 1948. It was actually the second boat. There was an early one that hasn't been remembered called the Orbiter. But that boat was called the Windrush. And so the whole period of Caribbean migration from 1948 to 1962, when the British government cut off migration from the non-white parts of the Commonwealth, they pretended not to do that, but that that is what the law did. Um, That whole generation has been called the Windrush generation. The curse for that generation is, in fact, the fact that they arrived in Britain British citizens. Because they arrived in Britain, British citizens with British passports, when their children were born in Britain, they did not naturalize them. Because why would you? You arrived as a citizen. Some of them didn't even get their children passports. So like my uncle, if he was still alive, would have been one of the people that was getting deported. It wasn't actually the Windrush generation who were being deported. It was their British-born children or children. So in my uncle's case, he was born in Jamaica, was sent for when he was five, comes to England, been living in England, paying tax his whole life, gone to school in England. And this is what happened, basically. People who lived in England for half a century, paid tax, gone to school, all of that good stuff, didn't have criminal records, whatever else, were being rounded up by the government and deployed. Now, if that were in any third world country, we'd call that a human rights abuse, you know, retroactively basically revoking people's citizenship based on their ethnicity. And it came out that the government had destroyed the records of them arriving in the country, which was the, kind of the most sinister Quite part. recently, wasn't it? In 2011. So they knew they were going to do this. And the funny thing is, we've been trying to tell people this has been going on. This isn't new for us. This has been going on the whole time we've been in the country, um, but has been speeded up in the last few years. It was only when it got to such a point of ridiculousness and then The Guardian started covering it extensively that it sort of blew up. Um, But it's still, since the scandal, they're still doing it. There was a recent deportations flight and they're going to continue to do it. And these are two Commonwealth countries. They will never, ever, ever, as long as we live, round up a plane load full of Kiwis and send them back or a plane load full of Australians by force. They might say, hey, you're from Australia or New Zealand, you've overstayed your mandatory 90 days or whatever it is you're allowed to stay in the country without a visa. 
could you kindly go back where you, come, where you came from or get a visa? But they will not be arresting any people from this country. And what they'll say is, see, it's not about race. You know, there's brown people from New Zealand, you know, but they know it's a minority, so the risk is not the same. Um, and so you have this, uh, again, this sense that you are not British, just to prove the point that it's that. When that boat arrived, the Windrush boat arrived in London, the Labour government at the time referred to the passengers on board as an incursion and said steps need to be taken to identify the ringleaders so that no further influxes are encouraged. Bear in mind these are British citizens. Half of them were war veterans. There were 200 Polish people on that boat too. They've just vanished into history. And in that same period of time, last point I'll make on this because I know you said briefly, sorry. But it does connect to the history here, right? In that same period of time, the British government was paying for 1.5 million domestic Brits to come and live in the Commonwealth, including here and Australia, many of, most of whom were too poor to afford the trip themselves, so the government subsidised them, about 75% could not have afforded the journey, and they swapped the 1.5 million white Brits they sent from Britain to the Commonwealth, they swapped for 1.6 million Europeans, including a million Irish people and 600,000 post-war European refugees, who the government subsidised. So it was nothing to do with the issue of migration itself, it's just they thought that migration should apply to white people only. And I don't say that to be funny. The New Zealand government had a racialized migration policy at the time, and London came to see them and said, look, you can do it, but just use a different wording, basically. That's actually what the documents say. They say, keep your whites-only migration policy, just don't use that language. Or the, the Home Secretary that oversaw the 1962 Commonwealth Immigration Act in, in England, Rab Butler, said... The great merit of this legislation was that it can be presented as non-discriminatory while its restrictive intent is intended to and would indeed apply to coloured people almost exclusively. That's virtually a verbatim quote. So this, again, the sort of very clever British way of do some really racist shit, but just don't make it look racist, okay? <laughs> don't make a fuss. Um, and so when we say going on about the past, our grandparents are being rounded up and deported today at a time when they should be cashing in their pension. People who've worked their arse off for 50 years building Britain a national health service are now being deported back to a country that isn't, or to countries that are not their home, where they don't know people, where they don't have family. Um, and that's why it's important to understand the past, otherwise you can't understand the present, which everybody understands when we look good. I feel like we could talk to Akala for two hours. I have got loads of questions which I haven't even looked at, partly because I'm too vain to put my glasses on. Um, but, and I do want to go to audience questions soon, but I want to ask you about yeah. the word natives and the title, because yeah. it is a very loaded word and you chose it particularly, so why? For exactly that reason, it invokes the colonial, imperial gaze, the idea that these people are the natives, they're bad. But it invokes who, a question. Who is native to British society? The example I always give people, when British people tell me they don't understand the way that white privilege works in Britain, I say, well, think about it like this. When I grew up, people whose grandparents came to England from Poland or Ireland frequently told me to go back where I came from. My maternal ancestors are the indigenous population of Britain. They don't even speak English, they speak Gaelic. They've been in Britain before the Romans got to Britain. And yet someone whose grandparents arrived from Poland yesterday morning, something has taught them that they have the right to tell me to go back where I came from. Ironically, even in the case of Jamaica, Jamaica was in a political union with England before Scotland was in a political union with England. So even on the black side, this idea that I'm a foreigner, that I came from somewhere else, what if not the fact that I'm brown has given people that impression? And so it's very clear to me that even when people pretend not to, they, they very much understand or at least conceive of often British identity in ethno-national terms. So who is native and who isn't? Publicly, we have a civic nationalism. Anyone born in Britain is really British. But privately, there is a, what, what 
you know, Stuart Hall would call a common sense understanding that we don't really mean that. That's why we say, you know, black and Asian. Our kids in Tower Hamlets whose great-great-grandparents came from Bangladesh, Asian. Many of them might not have even been to the entire continent of Asia. Um, that happened with the mayor, by the way. Sadiq Khan yeah, exactly. went on a trip to Pakistan and someone said to him, a reporter from England with a trip said, what's it like to be back in Pakistan? He said, I'm from South London, mate. You've never been there before. Precisely. Yeah, exactly. It would be like saying to a New Zealander, you know, or a white New Zealander when they go to London, what's it like to be back home? But, but no one would ever say that. They'd hear the Kiwi accent. They'd be like, oh, you're from overseas. But because you have the right as a white New Zealander to be a New Zealander, whereas a black person, no matter how long they've been in Britain, or an Asian person, no matter how long they've been in Britain, there's still a sense of, you're kind of foreign though, aren't you? Really? And that's okay, in a way. Like, not okay as in it's morally right, I think it's, the problem is when we lie to ourselves and tell ourselves it's not that. I've seen lots of, people always talk, say to me, why do you talk about all this stuff? And I say, I've seen so many black folk get to adulthood who are in denial about the way the world works. And then they get to adulthood and have a mental breakdown. Like literally, oh my God, the stuff that's been happening to me at work when people ask to touch my hair or tell me weird jokes or I didn't get that promotion even though I was blatantly better than everyone else. I don't mean like just calling racism. All the time. I mean, really obvious stuff. I've seen people have really difficult emotional difficulties in adulthood. Whereas one of the great benefits of having the kind of upbringing I had was I was never under any denial that I would be treated equally. And, and part of my success in life has come from the fact that my parents always said to me, you're going to have to be 10 times as good. You're going to have to work 10 times as hard. And that's just the way the world works. And I think brutal honesty in a way is of massive benefit rather than comf- comfortable delusion. We're going to go to questions in a moment, so please think if you have a question to ask. May I say to you um, that the book has got really extensive notes and bibliography. There's loads of books in there that I am really mm. eager to read. There's fantastic stuff about the Haitian Revolution. There's stuff about how mm. Cuba helped end apartheid in South Africa, a whole chapter of history mm. I really was ignorant about. Um, there's, I just want to talk briefly before we go to questions. And, and I, I will briefly, do this one briefly, I promise, I will. You became a hip-hop artist at a particular time in history, the early 21st century, where suddenly... I used to work in record companies. Record companies were no longer the powerful people. Radio stations no longer had power. You were able to come in in different mm. ways. And you were always a political activist in your hip-hop mm. as well. Do you, yeah. do you, can you imagine being the artist you were being born at a different time? No, it would have been literally impossible. I mean, without the internet, independent, self-funded urban music just wouldn't exist in the way it exists. I mean, you, even if you look at people who've become pop stars, somebody like Stormzy would have just been rapping to his mates if it wasn't for YouTube. You know, big, tall, dark-skinned, intimidating South Londoner. Instead, he does a cipher in the part of his mates, gets 100 million views on YouTube, and consequently, you know, just been put in the rich list this week. Do you know what I mean? Like, there are ways in which the world is changing because of the internet and because of connectivity. And ironically, even though I'm very crit- critical of capitalism, whether I like it or not, consumer freedom means that rather than the state telling which artists it can and cannot exist, consumer freedom means that actually young black artists in London have an audience, which is often a white audience, who is able to pay for what they want. Before, when I was growing up, the record labels, the gatekeepers in the British music industry got to decide what was hot and what wasn't. And as anyone who was a black artist a little bit older than me will know, it was frequently, they would use, Radio 1 used to say, it's the government radio, by the way, oh, black music's not hot anymore. Or, or one of the biggest A&Rs in the country got filmed on a train at, during the early 21st century saying, oh, it's all about the great white saviors. You know, it's all about white art, pinning a white face on black origin 
forms of music. I have no problem with people who are talented, but why we should select them based on the fact they're white rather than they're good, who knows? Um, and so there are interesting ways in which the internet in particular is complicating British identity. What does it mean to be white in a world where millions of young working class white boys in England identify more with Stormzy than they do with David Cameron? Do you know what I mean? Like, so it's really, the, the government knew what they were doing. The state knew what they were doing. The, the cultural gatekeepers knew what they were doing by excluding black perspectives. White people are human beings. To believe they're innately superior, they have to be constantly lied to. To believe that black people are subhuman, they have to be constantly lied to. If you allow someone like Stormzy to become a national star, which is what's happened, who got the best GCSE grades in his entire school, which is true, who's clearly very articulate, very talented, very confident, very much himself, there are consequences to that culturally for how people perceive black people. You've got Dave now. You, you could, this new generation of kids has just grown up in a world in which black kids from the hood in London expect to become superstars. And their white mates support it. So it's a really interesting uh, time to be an artist. And even though I was sort of the breakthrough generation, for the young kids growing up now, who've grown up on me and Kano and my age group, they've never known a time where there weren't black kids from just up the road who were superstars. Whereas I grew up, everyone was American. And so as much as I criticize Britain and as much as I, there's negative things I've got to say or difficult things I've got to say, I think Britain is also in a really fascinating, interesting, vibrant place in which culture is one area of the sort of battlefield for what it's going to mean to be British in, in the future. And we must be able to criticise our own country. I feel that really strongly. It doesn't undermine it in any way. It makes it stronger. I mean, how can you have a democracy if you're not critical of your own country? The example I always give people, sorry, I know I'm supposed to be brief, but it's an important one, right? When people say to me, you should be grateful you have free speech, I repeatedly point out to them that Jamaica has been in the top 10 in the world for press freedom the last three years in a row. It's 42 places above Britain. Virtually, ev 32, sorry. Virtually every significant Jamaican artist spends a significant portion of their time cussing the Jamaican government. And I'm completely here for it, quite rightly. They don't cuss the British government, they don't live in Britain. But again, it comes back to the idea that lots of people in Britain see me as a foreigner. So I shouldn't criticise my government, I should be grateful that I, I live in a country where there's free speech. And so I, of course we should criticise the society. Okay, questions. And can we have questions, please, not comments, all right? No personal stories. No talking about Proust as someone tried to do at the Auckland Writers Festival last year. I will answer these briefly, I promise. I do know what the word brief means. I, I, I am familiar with okay, it. Okay, first question down the back. Yeah, thank you. Kia ora Kingsley. Um, Kia ora. Great quarter. I, I just have a question from an academic point of view. Yes. Um, whether you wanted to make any comment around the importance of decolonising the academy. Yes. I don't mean necessarily obvious stuff like roads must fall, but you know, deeper than that, decolonising decolonizing the curriculum and the reading list, et cetera, et cetera, because, you know, what is the point of achieving justice in terms of access to education when the prize is um, you know, a colonial education? Yeah, very, very good question. I think it's really, really tremendously important. And I think lots of people think, or lots of people who are resistant to this, think this is just about, you know, black and brown people trying to be included. White people in the West need to understand the world because otherwise they won't understand the future. If you believe China is an emerging country, which I often hear people say, my God, you're going to be in for a shock. <laughs> you know, a country that was wealthier than the Roman Empire at its peak, a country that was putting 2,000 terracotta soldiers in a tomb, you know, with its king when my ancestors were barely building Stonehenge, is not an emerging country. Do you see what I mean? How ridiculous. Um, a country that was richer than the West for 17 of the last 20 centuries. So understanding human history is really, really important to bring it to the Haitian Revolution, which you mentioned. In the case of the abolition of slavery, 
People in Britain have told themselves that we benevolently abolished slavery, even though we tried to crush the only successful, I say we, slave revolution in human history, which occurred in Haiti between uh, 1791 and 1804. If you believe that these people are just benevolent recipients of charity, when you oppress them and they turn around and start killing you, you're going to be in for a bloody big shock. And so understanding what other human beings have contributed to the way in which even the West itself has become democratic, the extent to which black people had to force the West to accept us as human beings, i.e. the civil rights movement in America, i.e. the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa, i.e. the Haitian Revolution, etc. Decolonizing the curriculum and having these difficult discussions is actually about ensuring peace in the future. Because if I respect your fundamental humanity because I know what your contributions are, I'm more likely to respect you as a person, right? If I think, ah, you lot have just done nothing. You were in caves. We did you a great favor colonizing you. I'm not really going to respect you and that's going to lead to misunderstanding. So I feel like the difficult discussions in academia and reading difficult and confrontational literature in academia is much better than misunderstandings in the street. And so I think decolonizing the curriculum in that sense is absolutely necessary to ensure a more vibrant democratic society in the future. But most importantly, we're talking about accurate history. You know, people have got away with lying for far too bloody long. And, and one of the things I was saying to you, what, what's been really revealing to me about the publication of this book is the absolute intellectual cowardice of the people who should be my opponents in England. It's been in the top 10 as a hardback and a paperback. I don't say that to show off. There's not been one critical review, not from the Daily Mail, not from the Times, not from the Telegraph, not from any of the right-wing intellectuals. Why? But what about a non-right-wing intellectual like, uh, I mean, non-intellectual like Rod Little? Did he have anything no, to say? They won't, because this is what I mean. When they're in my face, as you saw with Pierce and others, they want to be my friend, because deep down, they know they're talking shit. Now, I don't mind it. If someone, I'm not saying that all conservatives are wrong, by the way. That's not my argument. There are obviously incredibly conserva- clever conservatives. My point is, when it comes to things like the abolition of the slave trade, they won't have the debate with me publicly, because they know it's deep down, they're talking shit. They've read the same parliamentary archive that I've read, in which the arguments were not about, we love Africans. The arguments were about, oh, we can abolish slavery and weaken the Americans, and we can do it for this reason, and economics, and blah, blah, blah. Wilberforce might have been like, hey, you know, fundamental humanity, Christianity, blah. No one paid any bloody attention to him, right? Do you know what I mean? When you actually read the parliamentary record. So part of it is about accuracy as well, and intellectual integrity. For a whole hundred years, British academics got away with lying. Then in the 1930s, two Caribbean academics, C.L.R. James and Eric Williams published two books and it destroyed them overnight. And so part of this, if we're serious, is also about intellectual integrity. You know, people on the right like to say, facts don't care about your feelings. They're absolutely correct. Next question, here at the back. And have we that, only got, what, have we only got one sorry. microphone? Is that the yeah. problem? It's small enough okay. for people to shout. All right. But I hear you. Uh, hello, assalamu alaikum. Um, I wanted to ask, you mentioned that you didn't get beaten up as teenager in London because... Oh, I did, just not by the police. By the police, yeah, (laughs) that's what I meant. But And that was a good thing. But don't you think that it is kind of like a subtle racism as in introducing the 13th Amendment in the US to bring back slavery? So it's it's a way to maintain racism, but very subtly while increasing it. Americans only started radically protesting these days because they got beaten up, it was recorded, people died. Mm -hmm. So if they were just being arrested peacefully, being illegally searched, nothing would happen. So I feel like, would you say it's more, it's more dangerous having it this way? Um, no, it isn't more dangerous. Um, it's, it's more subtle and more insidious, yes. But, you know, getting killed by the police and getting searched by the police, I mean, I, I know which one I'd pick. They're not, it's not very difficult. Um, I, I wouldn't underestimate how important political correctness is, honestly. I've grown up in a time where you call a black person a nigger in public 
and even mildly bigoted people would disown you. You know, you throw a banana skin at a black football player and even mildly bigoted people would disown you. It'd be very arrogant of me to say that John Barnes is wrong for seeing that as an improvement, given that he had to go through his entire career with people doing monkey chants at him and everyone thinking it was quite funny. Um, so, no, I see, it, I see it as a reform. I see it as a way of the system essentially preserving itself, yes. But it's still a reform that has made my life a little bit easier and other young black boys' lives a little bit easier. And yeah, cool. That hasn't changed British society overall. It hasn't undone racism. It isn't revolutionary. Um, but it's certainly not something to be dismissed. When I talk to my dad and my uncles, I mean, my stepdad was stripped naked when he was 14 years old and battered in the back of a van by police as a 14-year-old schoolboy. It's not for me to say to him, hey, it's not a big deal that that hasn't happened to me. Do, do you know what I mean? Next question, please. My question is, is that how is the British understanding of what things, things that are going on in, in, in society um, changing with, with the development of things like Navarra Media and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that, where uh, you get a completely different perspective and, quite frankly, honest um, perspective where yeah. you can you can see that that the institutional racism yeah. you can see things that are going on in the in the in the BBC and whatnot and it's it's yeah I get I get the question um, I would say a few things I don't believe objectivity I don't believe in objectivity as a concept and I'm clear about that in the book of course I'm biased like I had my experiences and my scholarship was a production of my experiences I try to be fair. And I try to be empirical, I, I try to root my arguments in evidence that I can verify. But I'm not objective. I can't speak on behalf of a Bangladeshi woman. I can't see the world through her eyes and her experiences. I, my argument is that society is better the more biases we include. The problem is when you have an echo chamber of just one set of biases. And I, I live by this. I read lots of conservative literature. It may, may surprise people. I read lots of Thomas Sowell. I read you know, lots of Niall Ferguson and others. Precisely because I want to understand where are these guys actually coming from? What I will say about the BBC in particular, again, the myth of objectivity, I believe, is just liberal nonsense anyway, so we can just disregard that as a concept. There are consequences, though, both positive and negative, because for every Navarra media, there is Rebel TV or whatever these other right-wing outlets are who reproduce the opposite end of bullshit, who are just also very popular. There are, there's a guy I follow on, on Twitter called Stefan Molyneux, and the guy has like 400,000... Exactly. I follow him because, you know, you have to know what he... And this is, you know, you've got these people who are peddling kind of race and IQ stuff in the 21st century. And I just ask them common sense questions that they can't answer. I say, okay, well, why don't we compare the IQ of the average Nigerian university graduate to the average Northern English working class person? And we could rep- reproduce all kinds of stereotypes about Northerners being thick, couldn't we? They're so dumb, they're not even as clever as Africans, right? If we wanted to do stupid, unscientific shit like that. But what they do is they compare the intellectual outcomes of people in Uganda, for example, who, without any control factors, years of education, nutritional intake, parental education, and they say, look, man, the Africans' IQs are low. They're reproducing this kind of unscientific bullshit, but to hunt to a massive audience. And so I think there are positive and negative consequences to online media. Whereas those of us, someone like yourself and probably many people in this room, who gravitate towards critical left-wing media, Democracy Now!, Navarra Media, whatever else, don't think there isn't the exact opposite of that just because you're not paying attention to it. And I think that is an equal danger. I think it's easy for people like me who are very critical of the BBC to take that institution for granted. And I think the irony is if the BBC were gone, Britain would be a much worse place. And I don't say that lightly. Think about what the alternatives are. Mm Rupert Murdoch. The BBC's bad, but there are lots of things that have happened on the BBC. There was a program my friend did a few years ago called Britain's Forgotten Slave Traders, 
which was about the way in which the compensation money that slave owners got from the British government, which they did, was spent. That would never have happened on Sky. That would never happen in the Daily Mail. So I think we should cuss the hell out of the BBC, but also preserve it at the same time. Do you mm-hmm. see what I mean? We should point out the ways in which it's completely full of shit, but also recognise that in countries that don't have that kind of media, do they have better programming, freer programming than Britain does? I doubt it. We've got one last question. I'm just thinking we'll just have married at first sight if we got rid of the BBC. Should we just take these two quickly? Yeah. Okay. I'll be really quick, I promise. I think, okay. I will be brief. Kia ora, one really quick comment that I think um, this country has a reluctance to hear about race and class coming from a Māori voice. So Absolutely. thank you yes. for opening up that space. Yes. Um, you mentioned Sarah James, and I've always been inspired by that sort of Caribbean black freedom intellectual mm-hmm. legacy. So out of thinkers like Sarah James or people like Fanon, mm-hmm. who has inspired you the most and why? And I just quickly want to get in a second question. We're seeing the resurgence of white supremacism, extremism around the world. We had a white supremacist terrorist attack mm-hmm. in yeah. Christchurch just recently. Yeah. What can we do in our communities to fight that? A um, couple of things. The first point you made, I actually make this point in the book. Everybody prefers to hear from someone else's black people. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and in the, so I make the point in the case of Australia. I'm offered platforms Indigenous Australian activists are never offered because I will go home and Australian liberals can pat themselves on the back for being so open-minded, right? Probably similar here. Don't mind hearing from me. Make a local person say a similar thing about New Zealand, particularly a local Maori person. Why have you got a chip on your shoulder? Which is exactly what I get told in England, yeah? Which is what a black American's going to get told in America. Yeah, I go to England, America, and I'm the cool black guy with the British accent. In fact, I've seen American police physically breathe a sigh of relief when they hear my accent. Oh, he's not one of our Negroes. Thank God. Um, In terms of the Caribbean... Um, all of the people you name, C.L.R. James, Walter Rodney, Eric Williams, all of that kind of golden age, Fanon, Caribbean freedom set, are sort of our intellectual inheritance. Even if you're not a kind of fundamental Marxist, in the sense that, you know, the world's changed quite a lot since the Cold War. There are lots of ways in which that scholarship might be engaged in differently in the concrete circumstances of today. As a Caribbean intellectual, that's kind of the standard stuff. In terms of the resurgence of overt white supremacy, I think part of the problem is there was such denial in the first place. And I think what I would say even to Western liberals is I don't think they realize the danger white supremacy poses to them, which I think is fascinating. Nazism did more to damage Western prestige, killed more Europeans than any other force in the previous 300 years. It made space for decolonization. It basically ruined Western, Europe, Western Europe's chances of ever being the richest region of the world ever again. And yet people in the West don't take white supremacy seriously as a force. So it's really, really strange. Like the, the force that has been most detrimental to Europeans is something they don't... Because it's such an illogically absurd, fanatical idea, but they recognise that fanaticism when it wears Islamic clothes, when it wears Hindu clothes, or when it wears any other clothes, Japanese empire. The, the Daily Mail even did an article about the Japanese empire saying, how dare the Japanese not apologise? <laughs> right? On the anniversary of, of, of the torture of the liberation of, liberation of, of, of Hong Kong. Okay. Um, so I would say that, yes, people have to engage with that uncomfortable history and uncomfortable reality and see that people are being radicalised. And they're very clear about that when it comes to Islamic extremism. So I'm understand why underst- I'm, I just don't understand why everyone's so confused when it comes to this ideology that has a history of unbelievable bloodshed behind it. 
And for some uh, local voices or uh, debates uh, similar to the ones we're having today, the conversations, look at Itangata, the website Itangata. Some of you will be familiar with it. Every Sunday they're publishing really, really great content from Maori and Pacific Voices. Beautiful. Uh, I encourage you all to go on YouTube to see your presentation at the Oxford, uh, to Oxford University, yeah. to see your videos, to, to read the book, to, to just learn more. It's a fantastic book, and it's been really wonderful talking no, to thank you. you. Thank you very really much. Please no, join thank me. You so much. Thank, thank you. Thank this Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival recording was brought to you with funding from the Dunedin UNESCO City of Literature and with the support of ORFM. The festival receives help from many corners, but we'd like to give special thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council, the Otago Community Trust and the Lion Foundation. Mm-hmm.